We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Yes, indeed. We have our Dixie. We are talking, ladies and gentlemen, about that wonderful part of our country south of the Mason-Dixon line. Yes, we are talking about, yes, indeed, the Confederate States. We are talking about the, the, the land of, uh, the land of uh, warmth and cotton. We're talking about sugar and, and indigo. We're talking about the tidewater. And the and, and the Piedmont and and, and, and the Low Country of uh, the Carolinas, the Mississippi Delta. What's that? That's right. A mid julep on the veranda, while the moonlight is playing through the magnolias. Yes, indeed. I'll tell you the our brave boys in gray, and so on and so on and so on. We're talking about William Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor and. Walker Percy, yes, 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 all of that stuff. The South. Well, I, you know, the, the South, well, firstly, I, I have a couple of confessions to make. Uh, I am a Yankees Yankee. I was born on the island of Manhattan. Uh, my dad was a native New Englander, the uh, third generation in that favorite region of the country. I will be buried there. I like to say I was born a New Yorker. I've lived most of my life a Californian, and I shall be for eternity a New Englander. But that having been said, I have a great love of the South. I, uh, my grandmother was from Maryland, which will not uh, not impress most people as a Southern state, especially if we've only been to Baltimore. <laughs> but. Uh, you get south of Baltimore, you go out to the eastern shore. Trust me, <laughs> you're in the south. <laughs> and uh, Delaware, Kentucky, all those border states, still more southern than they are northern. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. Uh, an acquaintance who uh, has kind of a, a very anti that they're were uh, on the, uh, I think there were 13 on the flag. Uh, at any rate, there were two more than they could count. They said, what was wrong with those Confederates? Could they even count? 
And then I had to explain, uh, no, there were two stars from Missouri and Kentucky that had Confederate governments that voted secession. And that's why they counted them. Maryland would have seceded. The legislature was all in favor of it. The governor, knowing that, was careful not to call the legislature back into the session until there were so many Union troops in the state that it was a non-starter. Mm-hmm. But you did have the Baltimore massacre to make up for it, which uh, is interesting because if you go to the Massachusetts State House, you'll see a, uh, a picture of the Baltimore massacre from the northern point of view. It shows these brave Massachusetts militiamen shooting into the crowd. And although the crowd don't have any arms, they look bad. They look very mean. And I took a friend of mine there from England, you know, on a tour of the, of the State House in Boston. And he looks at this and he says, Charles, what is this supposed to be heroic? I said, Oh yeah. But 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 they're fine. they're shooting at unarmed civilians. I said, yes, I know, but look how mean the civilians look. And look how noble the, the troops look. And he, he didn't understand. He didn't understand at all. Amazing. But, no, I, I, you know, the South is such a huge phenomenon. Like anyone, to be honest with you, and maybe if we keep doing these things, depending on how long this duration is lasting, uh, maybe we should do a, a regional tour of the country, you know, maybe do the Midwest next time. There you go. <laughs> but, can't leave them out. Uh, I'm sorry? We can't let them out. we gotta, we got to include them somehow. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a travelogue. Why not? Uh, but the South is a, is a, a many a many splendid uh, uh, phenomenon because, of course, other than the uh, – uh, the Civil War, Secession, mm-hmm. and uh, the horrible adventures of Reconstruction and Jim Crow. The Southern states really are very, it's a very diverse area. And so, uh, it, it although there is a certain definite pattern in a lot of the South, there are areas that uh, are very much themselves. And Southern Louisiana is one of these, of course, very, uh, very French, very Catholic. To a degree, the Gulf Coast, the Gulf Coast East, like Biloxi, Mississippi, Mobile, Alabama, even out to Pensacola, Florida. Uh, the the low country of the Carolinas are very, very, very different from the up country. Mm-hmm. And North Carolina, the Tar Heels state, is very, very different again from either of its of its neighbors, Virginia and South Carolina. So they they all have. Uh, uh, fascinating histories. Uh, the the uh, things that most people associate them with uh, are the products of, the, of their often rather unpleasant history. Mm-hmm. Uh, the colonial settlement was of the South was in sort of bands. So along the coast, it was mostly English with. Huguenots and, and other peoples. Further inland, it would be German. And then further inland still, it was Ulster Scott, Scotch-Irish. Mm-hmm. And you see that band all the way from Georgia to Virginia. Well, uh, after the revolution, of course, they moved westward. They settled places like Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and so forth. Louisiana got added in Texas. But... Uh, 
it is an area that is endlessly fascinating. It gave us one of our most peculiar literary genres. I refer, of course, to Southern Gothic, <laughs> uh, of whom probably the best-known practitioners were William Faulkner and Carson McCullers. And it came to a great degree, the, uh, the war between the states, the War of the Rebellion, the War of Northern Aggression, the Civil War. Uh, call it whatever war. you want to. Lincoln's War. Call it whatever you want to call it. Uh, it left its shadow on the South. Mm -hmm. And the South was defeated in a way that the rest of the United States have never been. And it is out of defeat that you get a certain kind of literature, a certain kind of culture. Um, much more European in that sense. Because the rest of the United States states have never, never uh, experienced defeat the way so much of Europe has at different times. The way all of Europe has sooner or later, one way or another. And so it, it created a sense, I think, of tragedy in the South that the rest of the country doesn't have. Mm -hmm. and, that, and you see that reflected in its literature. Mm -hmm. um, Flannery O'Connor, that great Catholic novelist of Georgia, she um, made the comment that the South is not Christ-loving, but it is Christ-haunted. And then she said, of course, even there, the South gives Christ more more uh, uh, interest than they do in the North. So she was definitely a Southerner. There's no doubt about that. Uh, having said that, it's important also to know that the, the Catholic culture in the South, oddly enough, has been more influential in a lot of ways than it has been in the North, even though there are a lot more a lot more Catholics to the North than there are in the South because of the immigrant waves. Mm -hmm. uh, that was certainly true at the time of the, uh, of the uh, Civil War. You had two Confederate, uh, Catholic Confederate cabinet ministers. You wouldn't have had that in the North, mm -hmm. not by a long shot. So you had this strange irony where Catholics are more influential in the South because uh, a lot of them were wealthy than they were in the North. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those odd peculiarities of history. Every major southern seaport had a Catholic population mm -hmm. by the time of the Civil War. Uh, again, very often Francophone and Irish. Mm -hmm. uh, so you go to Savannah, Norfolk, Charleston, uh, all those places. You know, for the oldest Catholic churches were all founded by French. Mm -hmm. Very often refugees from Haiti. Mm -hmm. Well, where are we going with all this? Uh, it's certainly true that the South has a particular peculiar charm of its own, but it also has a very dark side to it. And that, that dark side, uh, well, really, it's not too dissimilar from the dark side of New England, although it expressed itself differently. Mm -hmm. And that dark side is summed up in one word, Calvinism. Here's one of the great ironies of history. What is the most Southern religion you can think of? Outside of NCAA football? I'm sorry? Outside of NCAA football? Well, there's that. But, I mean, of established, of established churches, uh, what, is what it, would uh, you say? Uh, it's Presbyterianism, yeah. 
Well, they are Presbyterians, but I, I, I would think Southern Baptists would be Southern most Baptist, uh, yeah. most people would associate with the yeah. South. Because the Baptists are the single most populous religion in most of the South. Mm-hmm. Not in Southern Louisiana, not in certain other areas, but by and large, they're the biggest one. Well, here's the great irony. Baptistry in the South came from where? Uh, we talking about like uh, Lutherism breaks off to... Calvinist breaks off from Lutheranism. The Baptist, Baptist breaks off the Baptist, from Calvinism. The Baptist faith came to the South from where? Oh, from where? Uh, shoot, what was it? Uh, my, uh, not England. Um, no. Shoot, I, I, can, I can't think right now. <laughs> uh, I'll help. I'll help. How, Massachusetts. Uh, well, I was thinking Europe. Nope. Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, in the 1720s, uh, baptistry was seen as a terrible heresy by the Puritans in uh, Massachusetts. So they drove a bunch of their local Baptists out, and they settled in North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. And there is, a, I forget which one now, but there is a church in, in the backcountry of North Carolina that is the oldest Baptist church in the South. It's hmm. the mother church of baptistry in the South. Um and what was interesting about that was that prior to the revolution, the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, was the established church of the southern colonies. Mm-hmm. So in Georgia and the Carolinas, Virginia and all that, Maryland, you had things like Christmas and Easter and so forth that the Puritans, you know, would yeah. never do. Yeah. Never, ever, ever. But after the, the, uh, the revolution, the settling of the South, which we referred to earlier, uh, the more established denominations, the, the Catholics, the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, they were at a disadvantage in getting ministers to the newly settled areas. And the disadvantage was that their ministers or priests, in our case, required a lot of education. So it took time to process them, as it were. But with the Baptists and the Methodists in those days, all you needed was a column. And a call to preach the word of God. And so uh, the baptistry and Methodism expanded with the frontier. Hmm. And baptistry quicker because they didn't require as much preparation as the Methodists. And, of course, there's the old joke about why is the one church in town Baptist or Methodist? Well, see, without the church was built, they had a brawl between these two preachers. Brother Parker, he had the sharper fists, so that's why I've been Baptist ever since. <laughs> That pattern was repeated in town after town all through the South. <laughs> true story. <laughs> it's a true story. But the, where, you know, it's preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Now, that's also, interestingly enough, uh, you'll be happy to know that Pentecostalism came to the South also from outside. Now, we like to think of, of Pentecostalism and holy rolling and all that as being deeply Southern, and that's true in a sense. But the man who was the father of modern-day Pentecostalism, baptized Catholic black from Franklin, Louisiana. Now, his parents left the church, thanks to the Freedmen's Bureau, and became Methodists. Mm-hmm. So he was not raised Catholic. But he got into what was called the holiness movement. Now, the holiness movement, they 
split into two parts. They came out of Methodism. They split into two parts. The perfectionists, as they were called, say if you get a get it right with the Holy Ghost, then you'll be able to avoid sin for the most part. Mm-hmm. And from that, you get split off to the Methodists, like the Church of the Nazarene, if you've ever heard of that. Mm-hmm. But the other half, epitomizing this fellow whose name escapes me, this black guy from Franklin, Louisiana, well, there had been prayers for the latter rain. And the Holy Ghost, this is the mid-19th century now, would, would show his power and restore to the church the gifts that God gave to the apostles. Well, according to those who believe that kind of stuff, he did. <laughs> and where did he do it, brethren? Did he do it down south? Although it soon went over the south like a wildfire. No. Did he do it in New York City or Boston or any other stronghold of Yankeedom? No, sir. No, the Holy Ghost struck where you'd least expect him. Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> they, the fellow whom I mentioned, whose name I cannot remember. I'm sure some of our listeners will look, look up Azusa Street Revival and you'll find it immediately. He had rented a livery stable on Azusa Street, which is now this dinky little alley in Little Tokyo. And to the LA Times horror, um, and with a mixed congregation of blacks and whites, the Holy Ghost done, done fell down like a ladder rain. And they, they were speaking in tongues and healing the sick, <laughs> raising the dead. Well, maybe not raising the dead, but they were certainly speaking in tongues and rolling around on the floor and getting slain in the spirit. <laughs> and out of that, out of that basic impulse and out of a very literal reading of the Bible, you got all kinds of other fun stuff which are native to the South, like snake handling and so on. But while that was all very amusing to think about, uh, and I, I, I remember uh, not too long ago, well, I'm lying, maybe about 15 years ago, maybe longer, an old friend of mine who's an old Boston Irishman, he and I took a drive from Charleston, South Carolina to uh, Savannah, Georgia. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. Uh, we drove from Wilmington, North Carolina to uh, to uh, Charleston, to the Low Country, mm-hmm. and the churches got names that were getting weirder and weirder, like the Church of the Living God, the Pillar of the Ground of Truth, Inc., mm-hmm. the Two Seed in the Spirit Predestinarian Baptist Church, Inc. Mm-hmm. You know, they all had Inc. after them, mm-hmm. and the names just got stranger and stranger, and we we really felt in some sort of weird Southern Gothic novel, you know. <laughs> Well, we crossed the North Carolina frontier into South Carolina, and uh, we came into an old, old church called St. Stephen's, an old, an old uh, town called St. Stephen's, South Carolina, mm-hmm. colonial era. And there in the center of town was their colonial era church, St. Stephen's Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. My friend looks at that, and he says, oh, thank God, civilization at last. <laughs> You have never seen a Boston Irishman so happy to see an Episcopal church in your entire life. <laughs> but he was he was grateful as all get out, believe me. He was very happy. But having said all of that, um, where does this leave us? Well, 
you know, the, the, the low country is very different from the mountains, mm-hmm. and the, the, the old river towns and the old ports are very different from the hinterland mm-hmm. in the south. But there are certain things that you can say about the whole place. By and large, it's certainly true that religion play, of all sorts plays a, uh, a bigger role in public life than it does in, uh, in most of the country. Uh, it's interesting to note that it was if ever there's a, a fight between a state and the feds over religious symbolism, it's always a southern state. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember the uh, uh, Bush senior or Bush junior, that great conservative, sending in the federal marshals to yank out the chief justice of Alabama. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't able to save the uh, that poor lady in uh, in uh, Virginia. You remember? Uh, oh, what was her name? Uh, she was dying at the, uh, you know, her, her husband wanted to offer, and she was uh, unconscious. Oh, Terry Shivo. Terry Shivo, Florida. Yeah, Florida. Terry Shivo. Yeah. yeah, about the same time, Terry, uh, the president was unable, despite congressional action, mm-hmm. to save Terry Shivo's life, but he was able to arrest the Chief Justice of Alabama. Yeah. Go figure. So... <laughs> Never let it be said that uh, he was incapable of doing something about something or other. Yes. Uh, mostly other than something. But at any rate, I mention this because uh, that religiosity mm-hmm. is one of the biggest things a non-Southern will notice in the South. Uh, and as you well know, when a woman really wants to curse you or well, bless her heart. It 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 doesn't mean what it sounds like. <laughs> There's an inner translation to that. <laughs> yes, there is, and it's it's not a very nice one. But it is couched in religious terms, so that's something. Uh, the the uh, the two other generalities that people like to make about the South are, of course, the rampant racism, which you never get tired of hearing about, and the the last thing I'll touch on, which is the Confederate uh, legacy, mm-hmm. the lost cause. Uh, I have often and always and shall to the day I die maintain two things about the racial issue of the South. One is that Jim Crow was the legitimate child of Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And the proof of the pudding to me is that the gentleman's agreement that guaranteed black rights and ended Reconstruction was faithfully maintained by the Southern leadership as long as the generation that had made it was in charge. Mm-hmm. But when they were replaced by young people who had only known Reconstruction in their youth, that was when Jim Crow came along. And that I have a lot of heart burn with Jim Crow, not least of which because it racialized and so destroyed two things that I personally think are very important for a decent electorate, to wit, the poll tax and literacy tests. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be all in favor of a colorblind literacy test and colorblind poll taxes. Absolutely, I would be in favor of that. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately... The architects of Jim Crow destroyed those for everybody, mm-hmm. and that—that that is a very sad deal. Um, 
having said that, the the thing that also has to be remembered is that black culture is an integral part of the cultures of the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, black writers, a lady called Zora Neale Hurston, mm-hmm. uh, it says on her tombstone in Pierceville, Florida, a genius of the South. Mm-hmm. And so she was. Because she definitely wanted a northerner. She was southern. And she would have told you that, too. <laughs> she interviewed the last surviving uh, member of the, the last surviving member of the cargo mm-hmm. of the last slave ship to come to America in 1859. Oh, wow. Which, by the way, which ship came from Portland, Maine? Yeah, I always like telling us, yeah. what flag flew over those ships? Yeah, well, you got to bear in mind that abolitionism only caught on in New England after the prophet went out of the slave trade. Yeah, yeah. There's some moral high ground. We'll forget now. that. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's amazing how easy it is to get morally high grounded when you're no longer uh, no longer going to lose any dough over the deal. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's the the don't get me started. The whole triangle trade. I wrote a I wrote a book on rum. Yes. <laughs> And uh, Massachusetts rum was the stuff of the slave trade. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I mention all this to segue neatly into the whole Confederate issue. Now, this it's interesting to me that this brings up a ton, especially online, where, you know, people have the uh, emotional age of an infant. <laughs> uh, they, they lash out immediately. You know, oh! And... I have I I don't think in my entire life I have heard such denunciations of secession as treason mm-hmm. as I have seen from these fourteen year old well no they're all right, they're older than fourteen twenty four whatever from these kids online and some not such kids you know but you've got to remember a few important things here the first is that right up there with polio vaccine and the cocktail, one of this country's greatest accomplishments was getting over the the bitterness of that war mm-hmm. so quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, stop and think about it. 50 years after Gettysburg, they had a reunion of Confederate and Union vets. These are the people who had been there, mm-hmm. who had been shooting at each other, who had seen their brethren die at the hands of the others. Mm-hmm. And yet they were able to relive Pickett's charge, kept running down that hill, a bunch of old Confederates, into the arms mm-hmm. of a bunch of Union veterans. Now, what other, what other country could have done that? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's jaw-dropping. Mm-hmm. Now, part of the price for that was that both sides got to honor their dead and their heroes. Mm -hmm. And so, if you go through New England today, or the Midwest, you'll see all sorts of statues to the dead of that given town who died in the Great War to preserve the Union. And, up until fairly recently, even now in a lot of places, you go through the South, you see all sorts of statues to honor their brave lads in gray who fought for states' rights and freedom and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, see, that's part of the deal. That's part of what made that 
that incredible accomplishment so tremendous. Um, it's amazing to me, too, that two of the men whose statues have been yanked down, mm-hmm. Nathan Bedford Forrest and uh, uh, Beauregard, were crusaders for black and white reconciliation. Mm-hmm. But see, the people who are pushing this sort of stuff today are too stupid to know that. Mm-hmm. See, part of the problem with dumbing down education is that the products of a dumbed-down education don't know stuff. I know. It's hard to believe. How could that possibly be? You teach people nothing, and they end up stupid. I don't know. How could that happen? It's just too difficult for me to catch. The consolation, though, is that it's not just us proles who turn out ignorant and stupid. It's our masters as well. Mm-hmm. They're as stupid as we are. And that's... I mean, that's democratic anyway. You can feel proud of that. It's an accomplishment. You know, we're, we're not the only morons. We're ruled by them as well. We'll vote them in. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. As that wonderful old civil rights song my parents taught me used to go, What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned our government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest of men, and we elect them again and again. That's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. Oh, yes, 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 yes. They are wonderful people. So, Play that at your local rally today. (laughs) Well, listen, I mean, this is a, a lockdown rally. You know, introverts of the world unite. Separately, in your own homes. Maintain far distance. (laughs) Yes, yes, social distance. Collective isolation. Radical centrism. Stir up apathy. (laughs) Anyway. Bumper stickers will be soon to be purchased, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Yes, indeed, indeed. But be sure you put them on your cars, maintaining distance. Don't, don't, Don't be around anyone. But uh, no, mask. seriously though, <laughs> yeah. I, I or it doubles. It's it's a uh, it's a bumper sticker and a face Jeez. mask. You know, you're making a statement. So, Drop dead. Somebody might try that though without <laughs> the face mask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That 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 coffee serpent. Speaking of with <laughs> morons, get a moron. I guess. Anyway. <laughs> There is this better, everyone? So, well, that's the case. I have to go outside. You know, I keep my mask closed. But uh, no, seriously though. So pull your mic down, John. Uh, my, what's that? You pull your mic back down here. Your ah, uh, there we go. Government issued ninety five movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there we go. No, but my my uh, earliest memories go back to the uh, closing years of the uh, Civil War centennial. And at that time, the emphasis was, and I believe rightly so, on A, the bravery of both sides, and B, the, the great thing that we were one country once again. Uh, and that, ladies and gentlemen, I think was a tremendous accomplishment. What I hate today in the tearing down of the Confederate symbols and calling the... the uh, uh, Confederate uh, soldiers, traitors, and all this kind of garbage, which, by the way, they were later voted uh, as American veterans. 
And it's interesting to me that the sons of Union veterans of the Civil War have come out against the attacks on Confederate monuments and the Confederate battle flag and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now, these are the descendants of the men who actually did the work, mm -hmm. not, the, not the people with the big mouths, you know, sitting in their academic offices, you know, possibly sitting on their faces and talking, well, what any, at any rate. That was something a boot, a, a boot camp, a drill sergeant of mine used to say. How about we stop sitting on our faces? <laughs> that would be a good thing to say to our masters. It would be good if they'd stop sitting on their faces mm -hmm. and begin to speak with their mouths. I think it would be a brilliant thing. You may have I to, am a little emotional about this. You, you may have to explain that for some of them, though, if, they, if you tell them that. No, 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 no. <laughs> the, the slow ones among us, products of government education, I ain't explaining nothing. Ask your teacher. <laughs> She'll tell you if she knows how and if she isn't sitting on her. Uh, anyway, the point is, I would also like to point out, though, that what this is having the effect of doing is ripping open those wounds. Uh -huh. You know, not, not all the South has been culturally colonized the way the areas of Virginia adjoining D.C. and Charlottesville have been. Uh -huh. um, your, own, uh, your own state of North Carolina, my brother about... 10 or 15 years ago was on active duty and I went out to see him in beautiful Fayetteville, you know, at Fort Bragg. Mm -hmm. And it was funny, Fayetteville and its immediate environs were Yankee. Mm -hmm. Definitely Yankeefied, no doubt about it. And I know because as a Yankee, I, I, I know my own. But go out a few miles, it was the heat of the night. <laughs> you were in a different world, which is fine. I mean, my kind of people. <laughs> well, I, I, look, I mean, there's no reason why the South shouldn't be the South mm -hmm. any more than New England shouldn't be New England. But unfortunately, especially in recent years, we've tried to guilt the South. The battering ram that's used is race, mm -hmm. but I don't believe it. That's an easy battering ram to use. It's an easy card. Yeah. The problem, I think, is that the South is one part of the country. The Midwest is another. But mm -hmm. the South have a battering ram the Midwest lack. Uh, who are not, who just haven't been going along with the program as quickly as they should. Mm -hmm. They just haven't. And so they must be punished and uh, smacked around by our masters. The, the great, the smart people. Mm -hmm who sit on their faces. Um, so that is the great dilemma for the South. There's a larger dilemma, which I've touched on elsewhere, on different times and places, and it is a dilemma that came up in 1860, and it's rearing its head in different ways now. And that is the threats to the unity of this country. Um, you know, I, I was born into the United States that, on the surface anyway, attempted to value each of the 50 uh -huh. in each of its regions. We're all Americans. Um, the whole culture behind that had a lot of, shall we say, major defects. Uh -huh. One of them being this whole notion that America is an idea as opposed to a country. Well, it is a country. And unfortunately, many people have mistaken adherence to the idea, such as it was, 
for patriotism. Now, where am I going with this? Where I'm going with it is that because of a lack of a real patriotism that such as other countries have for the country as a whole, inevitably you devolve onto its regions. Even Gavin Newsom, Gruesome Newsom, the governor in California, mm-hmm. started yapping about California as a nation state. Well, a nation state, if it's a banana republic, somebody like him is governor, maybe. But seriously, uh, you know, there's a lot I'm proud of about California. Mm-hmm. But it's within a greater context. I uh, I think the the... The work of the Californios in repelling the American invasion, and then a story people don't often hear about, the way the, the Californios with nothing but lances and swords defeated the American army at San Pasqual. Yeah, well, that's something to be proud of. And the fact that uh, at the end of the day, it had to be a negotiated takeover and not merely a conquest. That's, that's something Californians should be proud of, mm-hmm. I think. But you don't hear about that. You don't hear about uh, the the fact that uh, <laughs> when Los Angeles was seized by the Union, the uh, the American troops set up their uh, their artillery on a hill overlooking the pueblo of Los Angeles. It's called Fort Moore today, Fort Moore Hill, because they built Fort Moore. And uh, the general commanding basically told the town fathers that they had a choice. They could surrender or he'd blast the town into oblivion. <laughs> it was made out, out of adobe, so that, you know, uh, they, they, they didn't have lances and swords weren't going to do them any good. Yeah, yeah. Let's not test but, that one. <laughs> but even, the, even then, they had, to negotiate the, uh, they had to negotiate. The result was the Treaty of Cuenca Pass, mm-hmm. by which Southern California came into the Union. Interesting factoid, however, there were a lot of French Canadians living in Los Angeles in those days. They come over the Overland Trail. So much so, the, uh, the general did not speak Spanish, but he spoke French. Huh. And because the second largest group of the mob were French speakers, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll speak in French. And you, you tell your friends what I'm saying. <laughs> and that's what happened. Uh, but not too surprisingly, Southern California was pro-Southern, was pro-Confederate. Mm-hmm. They had uh, three units of militia that were dissolved on the outbreak of the war because the state were afraid that they would, uh, you know, go over. Mm-hmm. And even at that, there's a little town near, near Los Angeles, a suburb called El Monte. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot to say about El Monte except they've got a big bus stop. But during the Civil War, Every time there was a Confederate victory, the uh, battle flag would be hung out from the Almaty City Hall. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's crazy stuff, ladies and gentlemen. This is, it, it, one of the great joys of history is that people really are kind of nuts, and they, they never stop being that way. <laughs> but you see, this is the kind of stuff we should all be able to take delight and amusement in. Mm-hmm. You know, we should be able to say, well... However, it turned out, it turned out, and here we are. How do we make a better future? Well, I remember you brought up uh, in one of your last Facebook posts uh, your top presidents, and you mentioned Jefferson, and 
and you know he had a secession battle at his time uh, the the northeast wanted to leave and he was go ahead well yeah and uh, and then of course my native state of new york uh, only signed on to the Constitution on the proviso that they could uh, secede mm-hmm. if they didn't like the way it turned out. Mm-hmm. You forget all that. Yeah. I um, no, I I, uh, I have to say that that American history is endlessly fascinating, and as a result, understudied. Oh, it it doesn't get studied nearly enough, we and still, certainly American. We still, you know. Uh... During SEC football season, you know, Georgia, if they score a touchdown, they play the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which, unless I'm mistaken, she wrote The Glory of the Coming of the Lord of Sherman Burning Down the South. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Well, you guys know what the song is about? <laughs> and well, and of course, you know, the, 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 the great ditty marching through Georgia, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hurrah, hurrah, we bring the Jubilee. Hurrah, hurrah, the flag that sets you free. When we were marching through Georgia. Well, yeah, that's Sherman's March to the Sea. Yeah. And I, but this ought to be the kind of country where you can sing that, where you can sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic or the Bonnie Blue Flag, where the descendants of the people that took part in those events can be proud. And after all, a lot of us descend from both, you know? Mm-hmm. That ancestors on both sides. Uh, there's a, uh, a Norman Rockwell painting of a family tree. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things you see is that the grandfathers, the ones in gray and the others in blue, <laughs> go on this convoluted tree. Then it comes down to the present, and you see the family of modern, as in 1950, mm-hmm. uh, American family looking at you. Uh, and that. You know, that, ladies and gentlemen, is something that if the country is to survive uh, alongside evangelization, it has to regain. Now, having said all of that, I have to say, I do have to say that my favorite part of the South is definitely Southern Louisiana. Oh, without a doubt. I'll tell you what, if it weren't for the heat, I'd move there. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm afraid those summers and the mosquitoes, man, they carry off sheep. <laughs> The, the, but, but we just moved back, you know, a couple months ago. We're sitting outside. My wife, she's from North Carolina. I'm a South. I'm the real Carolina, South Carolina. But I feel like I'm in a foreign land in this area. Anyway, she goes, "Look at the size of that mosquito." I go, "Yeah, you could put a saddle on that darn thing." <laughs> yeah, right, right off into the sunset. Well, you you know the the funny thing too that one can't leave out is Southern cooking. Oh yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't say something about Southern Turkey. Uh, where do I start? I mean, I'm not going to do gumbo and, and uh, jambalaya and all that because that's very specific. I'm not going to do she crab soup and, and all that. That's no, no, no. I'm not doing that. But I will talk about fried chicken. <laughs> I'll talk about Hop and John. I'll talk about uh, black eyed peas. And greens. Greens. <laughs> Collard greens, ladies and gentlemen, with big chunks of ham, bacon, and pot liquor sopped up with cornbread. Cups of pot liquor I would go by. 
<laughs> and you know the, the funny thing is uh, there's a chain it's still it's not as big as it was but there's a chain of cafeterias in the south called piccadilly yeah i remember piccadilly yeah well it's still around in some places yeah. but it, it used to be all over the south i mean from virginia literally to arizona yeah yeah and it, it's great their gumbo is great both the seafood and the chicken but whatever i had as a main course didn't matter it was roast beef, fried chicken, whatever I had. I had to have their collard greens and their black-eyed peas. Now, their black-eyed peas were okay, but they weren't as good as Morrison's, which was a rival chain. Then they bought out Morrison's. And they, they you know, had a the thing for write, write, uh, write in uh, advice or whatever, you know, comments. I said... Use the Morrison's recipe for black-eyed peas. <laughs> and you know they did? I couldn't believe it. It was, and I was so happy. So good. But see, Southerners, and that's another very European thing. It's not just their literature. It's the food. Mm-hmm. They, uh, cooking in the South has always been a bigger interest in life than it was in the North. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, Pennsylvania has its scrapple. New York literally gave us cookies. Yeah, yeah. But, and there's pastrami, and of course, Philadelphia uh, subs, and all sorts of things. I know that. But cooking was as big a part of life in uh, the South as it was in Europe. And I think for similar reasons. Because when you have a tragic history and a tragic sense of things, things like cooking become all the more important. Mm-hmm. They deflect the sorrow. Last point I should make about the South, and that is the Southern agrarians. I'll take my stand. Who owns America? <laughs> you heard of these books? Yes. Yes, well, they deserve to be reread. Uh, the... the uh, there was a, uh, I just wrote about it for Crisis Magazine, actually, uh, last week, the week before. But there was an interesting journal called the American Review in the 30s, which lasted for about four or five years, but is a weirdly unsteady mix of everything on the American right as it was then. But outside those two collections I mentioned, that's the biggest source of articles by the Southern Agrarians, because they wrote a lot for, uh, for the American Review. So look it up. Believe it or not, the University of New Zealand has all the issues online. Wow. (laughs) Yes, I know. I know. I know. So in your endless empty hours brought about by by the the shutdown, you go there, you read the American Review from 1933 all the way to the end of 37. But actually, I think I'll Take My Stand is also online. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll take a look at these. Well, you know, the Internet Archive and the, uh, the Google Books, Gutenberg, uh, the Gutenberg Project, just about between them, just about everything that's in the public domain is online. Very true. So just pull it. So the, the next time you're thinking of doing, uh, getting some work done, don't, don't you start. <laughs> Maintain discipline and don't do it. <laughs> exactly. If God had meant for you to get anything done, he wouldn't have sent a plague. <laughs> You've got to look, you've got to take the big picture of these things. <laughs> I, 
Charles, like, can you you mentioned Southern Louisiana? Can you speak on what uh, how we got Cajun? The name Cajun came from. Oh, sure. Well, and I'll, I might as well hit Creole while we're at it. Sure. Because those are two terms that are often used together, and people mistake them. You know, there's nothing uh, nothing funnier if you know the area than saying Cajun Creole or Creole Cajun. <laughs> Because they're very, very different. All right. So let's start with Creole. Uh, it comes from a Spanish word, Criollo, which originally just meant someone born in the colonies. So the original meaning of Creole was simply a person of French or Spanish descent born in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And these were colonial era people. Uh, soon they called Creole horses, Creole dogs, Creole tomatoes. Creole is anything native to, uh, to Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing was that unlike the Anglo world, where if you fathered a child on a slave, you'd get a better price for the kid than if you were pure black. In the French colonies, as in the Spanish, the Côte uh required you to acknowledge your offspring by slaves mm -hmm. and to uh, educate them and provide for them as you would your legitimate children. So the result of that was the growth of a people called the Jean de Colin, the gentlemen of color. Mm -hmm. And these folk were part white, part black, uh, descended from wealthy Frenchmen. And very often in the antebellum years, they would have French educations. I mean, as it having been sent to Paris to study. Some of them owned slaves themselves. Uh, so you have the Creole de Couleur and the Creole Blanc, the white Creoles and the Creoles of color, who were very often uh, related on their father's sides. <laughs> Same family names, <laughs> you see. Uh, and these, really, a lot of, they're still, the descendants are still very dominant in, uh, in Louisiana today. The uh, uh, French, however, uh, was forbidden to be used in uh, schools in Louisiana in 1918. Mm -hmm. And in New Orleans, probably very, very few of any Creoles, in the sense of either white Creoles or Creoles of color, mm -hmm. uh, speak French today. Mm. A few, I'm sure. There's always a few. But it's they, 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 that really worked very hard on assimilating them. But they were an urban people for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, not just New Orleans, but for instance, if you go out to St. Martinville, Louisiana, which is a very interesting place, uh, it was settled not by Creoles and not by Cajuns, but by French royalist refugees. And to this day, the French they speak in St. Martinville has this lovely 18th century tone. And that's true of both the, French, the, the whites and the blacks mm -hmm. out there. I love hearing it. I mean, honestly, I, I could hear someone speak St. Martinville French for an hour on end. It just sounds so refined and so 18th century. It's, it's beautiful. Anyway, uh, the Cajuns, a whole other set of people. Basically, uh, up in Nova Scotia, uh, my people were French-Canadian, and we settled the St. Lawrence Valley but and came from all over France. But from the west of France, Poitou and places like that, came the people who settled what we now call Nova Scotia, which the French call Acadia. Mm -hmm. 
and they they came, as I say, from roughly the same area of France. They spoke their own dialect. Um, and in 1755, in 1715, when Britain took over Nova Scotia, they agreed to be neutral. But in 1755, uh, the British government required them to swear allegiance to the British king and to give up their Catholicism. They refused. And so they were expelled. And the way they were expelled was they were dropped off in sort of packages of people every few miles down the coast hmm. from Maine to Georgia. They didn't really like that very much. So after a while, a lot of them went back to the Maritimes, not back to Acadia, which was resettled. The sections they had been in were resettled by New England Yankees. Mm-hmm. But they settled other parts of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and the Gaspé Peninsula of Quebec. Others went down toward the Spanish, the then Spanish colony of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Now, this must have been a terrible, terrible uh, thing to adjust to that climate from where they had been. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, though, is that one of the very few peculiarities of Louisiana Creole French is the way they pronounce D. Mm-hmm. They pronounced it with a J. Mm-hmm. So instead of calling these people Acadiens, they call them Acajin. And our word Cajun comes from Acajin, Cajun. Now, these were country people. And they settled out in the bayous on the one hand and in the prairies on the other of Louisiana. So there's a big difference between prairie Cajuns and bayou Cajuns, uh, who are different, again, from Creoles. Now, Another to add another twist to it, you had blacks who were francophone, and they came to be called Creoles by the Cajuns. <laughs> and not just in Louisiana, but all over the francophone world, a um, a black influenced patois came up, arose, came to be called Creole. And so there's an old saying in Louisiana and elsewhere. If you speak Creole, you're not Creole. <laughs> because Creole refers, as I say, to the white or mixed blood descendants. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, it came to be uh, people who spoke Creole came to be called Creole by people who weren't Creole. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> now, to make this all a little bit more, um, a little bit more difficult to understand, because I'm, I'm here to help, a, a good um, symbol, you might say, of these differences is that, that wonderful dish, gumbo. Mm-hmm. Now, what is gumbo? Well, it's a stew. Mm-hmm. And it's a stew that requires as its thickener, as its basic element, something called a roux. Mm-hmm. Now, what is a roux? Well, roux, you take flour, you take oil, you mix them up, and you fry it until it turns brown. Okay, that's roux. To be a gumbo, a stew has to have roux. Without roux, it's not gumbo. Mm-hmm. With roux, it is. But, but, we've only begun to plumb the depths because Creole, that is New Orleans gumbo, will have a thinner roux and it'll have okra and very sometimes tomatoes. Mm-hmm. 
Cajun gumbo. No, 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 no. You, the roux is thicker. No okra. No tomatoes. And then, if you go up to Natchitoches, Louisiana, which is the northwesternmost citadel of Francophone culture in, in Louisiana, there, their gumbo has thin roux and no okra. So the same stuff, but very differently applied. And that, I would tell you, is symbolic of Louisiana culture. Our Lady of uh, Prompt Secure. I'm sorry? Our Lady of Prompt Secure. Oh, yeah. Well, interesting story. Uh, in 1814, as, as you know, we fought a war with the British called the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. So-called because it started some year or other, I forget. Started sometime, the War of 1812. I'm not quite sure right. when. Give or take but, two years. Uh, two years later, the British att- attacked uh, in 18, uh, 1815, mm-hmm. three years later, the British attacked the city of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And the to, to try to resist them, Andrew Jackson had a mixed force, to say the least. He had a few American regulars, he had some local militia. He had freed slaves. He had Jean Lafitte's corsairs. And their descendants, by the way, are an ethnic group all on their own, just so you'll know, the Baratarians. They're, they're their own people again. Mm-hmm. But this, this mixed force met the British in a place called Chalmette. Well, all the while, they were praying to Our Lady of Prompt Secours, the patroness of New Orleans, that the British would be defeated because it didn't look good. But they were. Of course, it helped that Jean Lafitte showed uh, the Americans uh, another way to get to the uh, battle site. But nevertheless, uh, it was a pitch battle. General Packenham, the the British uh, commander, was killed, and the British were defeated. Now, of course, as it turned out, the the peace treaty of Ghent had already been signed. So... It wouldn't, it wouldn't have mattered if they'd won. But they didn't. And so Our Lady of Prom Sucker has been the patroness of the city against all evils ever since. I would not be surprised, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were praying to her as we speak uh, for the sucker against the, uh, against the plague, against the, uh, the, uh, the pandemic. The, uh, the sad story about that, though, was that poor Packenham, uh, was shipped home to England in a ship, oddly enough, huh. in a in a uh, rum barrel really? to preserve him. That was very typical. Huh. Uh, unfortunately, by the end of the journey, some of the sailors who had been surreptitiously drinking rum from a barrel found out they'd been drinking it from his. Oops. <laughs> Oops, indeed. Now, see, ladies and gentlemen, let this be a lesson to you. If you're ever a sailor on a sailing ship and you get a real thirst, don't pilfer the contents. You don't know what's in that rum. Better ask. You may not like it. <laughs> you may not like it when you find out. It's got a secret ingredient. <laughs> you bet. So that that's really a, a horrible thing, but there it is. Uh, the, the Carolinas, oddly enough, people often wonder who they're named after. Mm-hmm. Well, they're named after Charles the mm-hmm. First. 
uh, his, uh, he had granted uh, what are now called the Carolinas, Carolina, to a group of uh, noblemen. But then the English Civil War came and they couldn't develop their, uh, their property. Oliver Cromwell dies. Charles II becomes king. He regrants the properties to seven noblemen. And they organized the colony of Carolina. But, unfortunately, uh, rather than being colonized throughout, the colony is centered in two different areas, way up north, way down south. Mm -hmm. And they didn't get along very well. So I think it was in the 1720-something. Mm -hmm. They separated uh, the two colonies. But ever since then, North Carolina has called itself, referring to its northern and southern neighbors, Virginia and South Carolina, a valley of humility between two mountains of conceit. <laughs> uh, that is right. Yeah, the southern, the South Carolinians put uh, kind of flip their nose at the North Carolinians. Oh, <laughs> well, they they do indeed, and they really have no right to, given the fact that they have used mere geography to create one of the tackiest attractions in, in, in captivity. I refer, of course, to that that mountain of commerce south of the border you ever been there joe, joe we drove by it all the time on uh, uh during basketball days we take i-95 up and we were all joking hey, we we're gonna stop us south of the border you've got to stop at south of the border i have you know having lived most of my life in southern california and having been to mexico a number of times yeah. how is it i've never like i've never been so <laughs> you need to go as soon uh, yeah, as soon as you're able to travel, go see south of the border. It. I've been everywhere in South Carolina. I've I've driven by, but never been inside south of the border. Got to go inside. You've got to. I mean, get yourself a back scratcher. <laughs> you know, you you you've got to soak up the ambiance. I'll tell you, it's really authentic. It's like Denver with Casa Bonita. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Your taco hell or bell. <laughs> <laughs> it 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 is it is so over the top. You really you really need to go see it. You know, the last time I, I I went on a real tour of the South was about two years ago, when I already knew that I was gonna be gonna be coming here to Austria. So I thought, well, I better take the chance. A friend of mine and I drove from L.A. through the South and back. Oh wow! And I'll tell you what. It was it was great, it was absolutely great. We got to, we saw Vicksburg, mm -hmm. uh, we saw uh, Petersburg and Fredericksburg, toured all the battlefields of Northern Virginia, Manassas, and, and all that. Uh, coming back, oh, and we we uh, we did something interesting. We uh, we drove at breakneck speed through Tennessee, <laughs> uh, but we stopped in Columbia. Tennessee. Now, why? What's the big deal there? Well, they do have James Polk's uh, house, mm -hmm. but they also have the national headquarters of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, mm -hmm. who are building a museum. Hmm. So keep your eye on it. Go visit it. Yeah. From there, we went to Dollywood. That's where we stayed at the big hotel in Dollywood. Oh wow. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And I'll tell you, I had a good time at Dollywood the next day. It was great. 
haven't been, but uh, if I haven't been to oh. south of the border, I guess you could also make sure that I haven't been to Dollywood. <laughs> see, see, I loved Dollywood. I really did. Been to Gatlinburg. I, uh, big one. Been to Gatlinburg. Oh yeah, yeah. And then from there, we drove over the mountains to to uh, Asheville uh-huh. and Biltmore, uh-huh. which is really worth seeing. Uh-huh. Biltmore has had a huge effect on the area around. Mm-hmm. Even the McDonald's near Biltmore has this gigantic mantelpiece. Oh, yeah. I mean, no McDonald's does that. The uh, The interesting thing, too, is that there's a basilica, a Catholic basilica in Asheville. St. Lawrence. Yeah, which is that and the Episcopal Church, also worth seeing, mm-hmm. were both built by Mr. Vanderbilt mm-hmm. for the workmen on his estate mm-hmm. who built it. So... Uh, I mean, that's it's it's amazing stuff. And then uh, from there, we drove to uh, Fredericksburg, mm-hmm. Petersburg, and saw the, the siege. And there's a museum of the Civil War there, a private museum, which is really worth seeing. Uh, you know, and, and then up up to uh, and, uh, previous occasions, of course, I've been to Williamsburg, which I really recommend very, very highly. I was a wee and lad York- last time I was there, a wee, wee lad. Oh, go back, go back. And uh, Jamestown, Uh which has both historic Jamestown, a a reenactment like Plymouth Plantation in in Massachusetts, and also Jamestown itself with the memorial church rebuilt by the colonial dames or wherever it was. And now that we know that there were Catholics buried there Uh at Jamestown, and that there were at least as many Catholics as there were Anglicans, the whole Jamestown thing has a much more significant, poignant thing for American Catholics. Because these were people who came across the sea. Their religion was persecuted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet they were buried with their rosaries. You know, which was, which was amazing. Uh, Southern Maryland uh, is worth seeing a lot of the Catholic sites there. Mm-hmm. Same in Kentucky, you know, Bardstown with the Proto-Cathedral and Holy Cross with its uh, church going back to the 1770s. I I mean, oh, heavens, driving across the South is well worth it. But, you know, one of the unfortunate things we found at Vicksburg, in fact, there were two two rather sad things. Uh, Every state of the Union that had troops in Vicksburg uh, there are commemorative uh, monuments to the to the, the state, mm-hmm. but they're not sending their money to keep them up anymore. Mm-hmm. So the feds do the best they can, but they've got a limited budget, and that is a crying shame. That's something you should demand of your state historical preservation office. What are you doing about our Vicksburg monument? The other thing that was interesting and sad. Went to went to Georgia. That wasn't sad. It was interesting, uh, but we went to Warm Springs. Now I got to tell you, I am not what you would call a fan of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, mm-hmm. not at all. Mm-hmm. But I am fascinated by it. fascinating character and a big part of American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, if my being in favor of uh, Confederate monuments is good by being in favor of keeping up Roosevelt's things is bad. No, it's all a part of our history. And 
letting any of it go to pot, well, whoever's responsible should be severely punished. Mm-hmm. Face pulled up out of his seat, turned around, sat down, and gave it a good talking to. Anyway, I digress. Hopefully they figured that part out now. <laughs> well, maybe they will. I'll give you a free maybe. flight to Austria if you can't. <laughs> yeah, well, there it is. So the, the phrase, you know, that's something that should pass into parlance is face sitter. Yeah. That should become an expression. Oh, yeah. Our our governor, mayor, whatever he is, he's a real face sitter. Ha <laughs> <laughs> We'll leave people to figure out what that really means. At any rate, uh, so we get to Warm Springs, which is where Roosevelt died in the so-called Southern White House. Pay Ted Bucks, you could sit where he had his hemorrhage. No. Oh, bro, you could look at the chair. You can't sit in it. Ted Bucks, you can't lie on the bed he died on. No. <laughs> okay. So in the adjoining museum, which is very, very good, they have these numbered stations, which are the kind of stations you would have if you had a sort of audio guy. You know the machine, but there are no such offer. So we asked the uh, the ranger. It's a state park. We asked the ranger. This looks like stations for audio guides. Oh yeah, we had audio guides, and those are the stations. Well, why don't you have them? Well, this is a state-run facility, and the state is no longer uh, replacing the batteries. Well, why? <laughs> oh well, because the schools no longer teach about Franklin Roosevelt. So the school kids don't come here anymore. I said, wait a minute. If they're not teaching about Franklin Roosevelt, that means they're not teaching about World War II or the Depression. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah. Yeah. And probably not about Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia either. (laughs) Well, all right. But here's my problem with that. If you're not going to be teaching these kids about the Depression, World War II, and Franklin Roosevelt. What are you doing? I say let them out. Yeah, why, why bother? No, nah, let them out of school. If you're not going to be teaching them things that basic, you have no business keeping them from 8 to 3. Let them out at noon. <laughs> and if you're going to keep doing this, well, we're also not teaching math anymore. Okay, let them out at 11. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Well, we're not teaching them uh, literature either. Okay, let them out of 10. Oh, and we're not teaching art or music. Okay, then let them out at 8 when they're supposed to arrive. <laughs> what are they teaching them? Because <laughs> they're not letting them go early. No, yeah. No. So, I, I mean, you know, you'll hear people, the face sitters, yap about separation of church and state. I think what we need is separation of school and state. Because mm-hmm. they're not going to teach them anything. Get the state out of the education business. Pull them right out. Mm-hmm. You know? And, it, oh, well, we have to have daycare. You know what? No, you don't. If you're not going to be teaching them, I'd rather see them running around as delinquents in your neighborhood burning your home. <laughs> be more productive. <laughs> You bet. Well, I mean, you know, it was like that lady who was the mayor of Baltimore when they had the riots a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was saying, oh, well, you know, we have to let them do the Let them ride to your neighborhood, lady. Yeah. Truck them in and put them in your backyard. Yeah. Maybe you'd get your face out of your seat. Yes. 
He's giving you yeah. like five or six references now. We should have kind well, of. Uh, the thing is, the, um, the more you think about it, the more apropos it becomes. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's what I That's what they've been doing. Now I understand why we're run the way we are. <laughs> I get it now. When you're run by people like that, of course it's it's going to turn out this way. We're we're here. We are at a time when people are struggling to keep the abortion mills open. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me explain something. Okay, if churches are not essential, neither is murder. If in your jurisdiction the churches are closed and the abortion mills are open, you need to get your resident face sitters out of office. And you need the medical personnel of those clinics on the front line against the pandemic. Hmm. Their essential medical skills need to be used in saving lives, not taking them. Especially when you're furloughing uh, the hospital workers right now. Here's one for American Revolution was. I grew up a few miles from the uh, uh, Cowpens battlefield. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Cowpens. That. Yep. Uh, you know, you're part of the world uh, that has so many fascinating, fascinating things. The Cowpens, Camden, mm-hmm. uh, what was it, 46? It's a number. Yep. 56, 66, I forget. And, of course, uh, you know, the the, the um, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, mm-hmm. fascinating place. But nothing can beat Charleston. Oh, my favorite. I I. Speaking speaking of uh, she crab soup yep. and uh, mulligatawny and gosh, all sorts of fun stuff. Oh, I lived there for a few years. My, it's by far my favorite city. Hoppin' John. Yep. See again, I Charleston, like New Orleans, uh, I would love if it weren't for the summers. I can't take that humidity. But you know what's what's funny? Uh, they tell the same joke in Charleston and New Orleans. You know who the SOBs are south abroad? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do the SOBs in Charleston and the uh, Creole Blanc, the white Creoles in New Orleans, have in common with the Chinese? You got me on that one. They all eat rice and worship their ancestors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't argue that <laughs> no 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 you can't it, it, it's you know the uh oh and since since we're vaguely out in the south i should tell you uh, tell you this old joke how many southerners just take the screw and light bulb everyone's left none <laughs> no no go ahead three three one to do it and the other two to sit around and talk about what a fine old light bulb it was <laughs> You know, it, it's it's the one of the, one of the interesting things about the Antebellum South was the great desire they had to play catch up with the North in terms of education, mm-hmm. and they really pioneered girls' schools, you know, women's seminaries as they called them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 funny thing about the South is that whereas a lot of the North is sort of one blend of mediocrity, as it were. The South, you had such a, a 
divide between gentility mm -hmm. and uh, the vulgar. The, the, I remember a southern lady said to me once that it takes generations to make a gentleman and only one to make white trash. <laughs> but that, you know, we, we have the same things in the North. It's just that they're not so blunt about them. Mm -hmm. You know, all the jokes about inbreeding and so on that you make in Appalachia, they make in different parts of New England. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the code of the hills. Mm -hmm. What I say is, if a girl ain't married by the time she's 13, she's an old maid. Well, <laughs> there are places like that in New England. Yeah, which is easier to pick on. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and in New England, we, we just we try not to talk about them. When I was in Denver, I saw things that would tell my driver, my riders, man, if that happened back in the South, you'd be on, we'd be on TV all week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, the, the, the Southern, the South always gets a, gets a bad name for crooked politics. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember how far South Mayor Daly was. Oh. Sorry, I wasn't supposed to mention that. <laughs> so, I, I mean, one of, the, one of the problems I think the South does labor under is that the rest of the country does tend to project its own I mean, don't get me wrong. You'll find everything, all, that, all anything bad you'll find in the rest of the country. You will find in the South, but it's not peculiar to the South. <laughs> we don't have a the way we, on it. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a. Uh, I won't say where it is, but it's in New Hampshire. There's a, a section. Whenever I go through it, I always call it Tobacco Road North, <laughs> because it's just awful. But you know, if if, if, you, if you say that. No, you're, the things you're not supposed to notice. Yes, yes. But no, I I, I do love the South very much, and I I think that uh, it's to be commended. By the way, it's held on to its identity, mm -hmm. despite all sorts of efforts not to, and that cuts across our the color line. You know, the the there are a lot of want for a better word, we'll say black subcultures in the South. That are very much their own thing, from the Gullahs and the Sea Islands off uh, Georgia and South Carolina, to the uh, uh, the different uh, folk groups in Southern Louisiana and the Gulf Coast. You know, one thing you learn about human beings is that they have they always have hierarchy. They always have uh, stresses and strains within them. And my dad was from Bedford, Massachusetts, which was a very ethnically divided town in his, in his day. Mm -hmm. He was French-Canadian. Well, the French-Canadians did not like the Irish and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Then there were the Poles, there were the Italians, there were the Germans, the old Yankees. Mm -hmm. And all these groups disliked one another. They had blacks, all right, but they had three different kinds. You know, because life will never let you be simple. <laughs> So you had the old northern blacks who descended from the freemen uh -huh. of the colony uh -huh. who were actually very aristocratic and those of the air in their way. Uh -huh. You had the southern blacks who would come up uh, for after World War I to work in the factories. And these two did not get along at all. Uh -huh. And then you had the Azorian and uh, Cape Verdean blacks who were Portuguese. Uh -huh. And the two, the southern and northern blacks, couldn't stand them, and vice versa. So 
my dad said that uh, his first uh, his uh, first real realization of race was to see this with the blacks and say to himself, "My gosh, the blacks can't stand each other, just like the whites." Yeah. <laughs> and that that was his big the great realization he got out of growing up in that sort of a background was to see how much everyone disliked each other. And then, of course, they had Indians, American Indians, mm-hmm. the Mashpee, who couldn't stand anybody. <laughs> and this uh, this became all the more bizarre for him because his best friend was a Mashpee Indian. <laughs> and, which tells you a lot. It tells you as much about my father as it tells you anything else. Mm-hmm. But it 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 was a uh, it was a great education for him, and it's something he passed on to me. Uh, the trick is in life if you learn to love your own people you realize that it's quite legitimate for everyone else to love theirs Mm -hmm. and that they do all love them I mean they love their people the way you love your own and so from that you could begin to move outward you know when you're in sorry no I was going to say uh couple books that got me going on it was uh the politically incorrect guide to the south the pig series obviously the european yep. empire but uh, you mentioned yep. a couple others what are a couple others that you could think of for somebody that is sitting at home maybe reading or not reading <laughs> well for good books on the south i would recommend several i would recommend zora neale hurston uh who Interestingly enough, she did something terribly heretical that she was roundly attacked for by both blacks and whites. Mm-hmm. She wrote a novel with all white characters. How dare she? Yes. How dare she? It's called Seraph on the Swanning. But I would recommend very much her autobiography, Dust Tracks in a Road. Mm-hmm. I would recommend... Uh, a book called Gumbo Yaya by, um, gosh, I can't think of his name. But anyway, go get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that? There's not too many books named that. <laughs> no, there aren't. You'll, you'll be able to get it. Uh, I would recommend Cartnet, uh, uh, Hartnett Kane. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Louisiana Hayride. Um, I would recommend I'll Take My Stand by the Southern Agrarians. And if you can get it, the sort of sequel to it, which was called Who Owns America, that tried to apply the same ideas that they were looking at the South with on a larger scale. Uh, I certainly would recommend Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy. And Walker Percy's uncle... um, I can't forget his. I can't remember his first name. William was it? But uh, "Lanterns on the Levee" was the name of his book. Mm-hmm. Walker Percy, uh, my personal favorite, is called uh, "Lancelot." Mm-hmm. But the the moviegoer is what he's best known for: "Lost in the Cosmos." Um, I would also recommend, as I would for all, all the states the WPA Federal Writers Project Guides. Hmm. 
Now, these are a fascinating source of Americana and a great introduction to every part of the Union. It came out in the late 30s. Uh, President Roosevelt had something called the Works Progress Administration that built a lot of things around the country, mm-hmm. um, all sorts of buildings. But there were also, you might call, intangible projects that came out of that. The Federal Artist Project, the Federal Theater Project, the Federal Music Project. Uh, the one that concerns us here is the Federal Writers Project. Now, this was a program set up in each state which employed the many unemployed writers because, of course, the Depression put newspapers and so forth out of work. Mm-hmm. So you had all these writers with nothing to do. Uh, it gave them jobs, and what they did was they found out in every corner of their given home states and did research. Uh, what they produced was a guide to each state and in some places, certain regions of the state, certain cities. Mm. And these things are an incredible snapshot of America in 1938. Mm. But they will tell you so much about local history, state history, state lore. They're they're just great, absolutely great. Uh, Now, a lot more material was written and recorded by them than ever went into the books. And over the past few years, this has become uh, available through different venues, the Library of Congress and some other other things. So look into the Federal Writers Project, uh, whatever your state is, North Carolina. I've read all 48. They also did guides to Puerto Rico and Alaska. Uh, in, in California, not only do they do California, they did uh, guides for San Diego, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, Monterey, and San Francisco, hmm. which are all fascinating. Okay. And are, they're, they're good to begin with in exploring your state as it is now. A lot of the stuff isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is. you know. And, and the, uh, every section is divided. Every book is divided into three sections. The first are very interesting general articles. So it'll start out with an introduction to, say, North Carolina. Then there's a chapter on Indians, a chapter on religion, a chapter on history, a chapter on folklore, mm-hmm. a chapter on ethnic groups, a chapter on the economy, a chapter on transportation, a chapter on agriculture. Hmm. Then the, the second part will be the major cities. And there'll be ar- uh, articles on each of the major cities. In your case, Wilmington, Raleigh, uh, Asheville, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then the third, the third are itineraries to go traveling by car. Oh, wow. Okay. Take you all over the state. And really and truly, ladies and gentlemen, this would be useful for lockdown right now because you can explore. And by the way, these are all online. The, the guidebooks are. I mean, they're not all in the same places. You have to search for them, mm-hmm. but they're there. Um, and then when the uh, when the thing lifts, or even before, if you take short trips in your area, you'll at least be able to drive to these places and look at the outside. Yeah. I mean, everything is closed. And you'll be able to compare what's what's changed and what isn't. And remember, too, this is before the freeway system. Yeah. So it'll take you through the back roads and the U.S. routes the and so forth. Driving. Yeah, yeah. I, I advise everybody, you know, now that you've got the, uh, the GPS, you set that thing on no highways, mm-hmm. and you take a drive. 
And I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, you'll be in for a good time. Oh, yes. Amen to that. Well, Charles, uh, this was fantastic. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. I mean, um, literally, you know, we are all in this together in our in our little little hidey holes, uh, and that too, you know, it's it's an odd thing because it's a divisive phenomenon, and that we're all sitting behind our closed frontiers and so on, mm-hmm. and our social distancing, but it's also very unifying in the sense that we're all stuck in the same way, and you know, I have the sort of mentality where I'll be thinking about places I could be right now. Where would I go if I were in New Bern mm-hmm. or Raleigh? What places would I hit? Well, the funny thing about right now is the answer is nowhere. Because everything I would go do any place, yeah. anywhere in the world I know, mm-hmm. it's all shut down. This is a very unique and strange time. And something, in a sense, to be savored. Because when it's gone, it'll never come again, please God. Well, should it, hopefully. <laughs> well, we, we hope so. But, I mean, think about it. You are equally at home right now in Vienna. Yeah. You could do as much or as little, emphasis on as little. Yeah. Stress the little. As you, <laughs> yeah, stress the little. On your own, on your own area. I mean, I, I can't go up to Vienna. Yeah. My world ends at the uh, at the Cafe Ves. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you, up until uh, up until last week, it ended at the Adeg Market. It's expanding. <laughs> yeah, it's growing baby steps. Yeah. So, as I say, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Let's just hope it's not an incoming train. Yes. <laughs> well, that. With that ending, we'll, t- we'll tell everybody goodbye and see you guys next time. <laughs> right Oh, God bless you all. And remember, being locked down is better when you've got a place to stay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, bud. Appreciate it. <laughs> Here to help. God bless you all. Take care. Bye-bye.